Welcome to the Music of America podcast, where every week we visit a different state in America and meet a different guest in the music industry. Every day, Monday through Friday, we begin in Alabama and we end in Wyoming. I'm your host, Tom Pollard. Let's talk music here on the Music of America. And the Music of America podcast continues. We're with Steve Fundy in Papa Aloha. Hawaii, and we'll be with him after we talk to you about my guitar. I have this custom-made, handmade acoustic guitar named Margaret. With the tonal quality of a certain name brand high-end guitar, this baby fits my hand perfectly. It has a mahogany neck. It glides easily when I play, but what I love most is the low-end sustain. It might still be ringing from the first open E chord I played when I first got her. Well, she was built for me by Joe Mendel of Joe Mendel's Frets, one of our sponsors here at Music of America. A maple bridge and fretboard, a veneer zircoat headstock, but I think it's the spruce body that gives it the resonance and the sustain. Just a beautiful looking and beautiful sounding guitar, all custom made for me for and by Joe Mendel's Frets. JoeMendelsFrets.com. Now, what people didn't see, Steve, is how many times I butchered the name of your town. <laughs> I know. <laughs> setting this up. Well, I've, that's good I've, because edited it all down. That's right. I've been to Hawaii once. We stayed in the Big Island. We stayed that's at Kona. Right. And yeah. that's that's why that sounded familiar. So you're on Big Island. Yeah, I'm about 90 minutes, about 80. In good, if I really rush my ass off, I can get home from Kona in 80, 85 minutes. No kidding. It's not that close. I used to live on the Hilo side, and it was uh, a little further. Yeah, but I, I played in Kona most of the time. The thing I found most fascinating about the Big Island is there there are seven climates in the world, and you can find five of them on that I island. I thought there were actually. Well, this is what I was told on our... Actually, uh, that's incorrect. There's 13 climates in the world, and we've okay. got 11 of them or 10 of them or something like that. Something like that. Maybe that's yeah. what it was. It was years ago that I went. Yeah, it, yeah, it's very true, though. I mean, I live literally, when I look out my back door on a, on a clear day in the wintertime, yeah. I look at, right at Mauna Kea. I mean, if I could take you outside, Mauna Kea is visible right now. And in December, this past December or January, it was completely covered in snow. Wow. I mean, not a little bit. The whole mountaintop was completely covered in snow. And I drive two minutes, five minutes with, you know, getting out the gate and whatnot. And I'm down in the humid heat of Papaloa. Half an hour, I'm in Hilo, hot, you know, mm -hmm. tropical, down to Puna jungle where I used to live. And then desert, Kona side is all desert. And there's, you know, all kinds of different versions of desert. So, yes, right. Hawaii's got all kinds of crazy, you know. And up here at 1,000 feet, it's usually about eight to ten degrees cooler than everywhere else down low. Uh -huh. So it's hot as hell day. You come up here like ah. <laughs> one of my cheat sheets that I have here in my formerly what did Russell Limbaugh say? My formerly nic nicotine stained fingers. Ah, good look, good for you. Yeah, um, like ages ago, and it's a good I've idea. Got, I've got bottle of blue, Uncle Charlie, Gone Country, uh, Jumping the Shark. These are all bands that you have been with through your career or your recent career, your recent recent, recent actually recent. actually Uncle Charlie is current. Okay. Gone Country is current. And I play in another country band too now, which is called Grass Fed Longhorns, but that's neither here nor there. But Gone Country, I've been in now five years. And Uncle Charlie is kind of a strange outgrowth of Bottle of Blue. Now, the version of Bottle of Blue that's on the recording didn't exist anymore because the drummer quit and we replaced the drummer with a female drummer named Kristen Bolton, who is an amazing young, well, 38, young drummer. And the bass player and I were in both Bottle of Blue. And then so she was in both bands. And then my friend Jason Shrabundi came here from California and he's an incredible piano player. He joined Bottle of Blue when the other keyboard player quit. So now we had this lineup, basically mirror-imaged Uncle Charlie and Bottle of Blue were the same band, but Bottle of Blue had a lead singer. So we were four players in one band or four players plus a singer in the other band. Wow. So Bottle of Blue did its last gig two weeks ago, actually three, in Kona because the lead singer, Scott, had bought a five-acre farm and his working his ass off in this business and he's got no time to be in a band. 
So he had to do what he had to do. And I understood, we all understood, but Uncle Charlie continues on and we're playing next Friday night in Kona. Come wow. on down. Come on down. Yeah, just Hi over, dude. I'm up in Vermont. I'll just walk on down. I'll just be there in a matter yeah, of It's a long walk. Long walk. <laughs> but the water pressure so, yeah, really gets you. Yeah. I mean, and Jumping the Shark was my last band in California. Actually, I was in two bands concurrently. One of them was kind of just a rock band that we we just did for fun mainly. And, and it wasn't even a, a gig. I think we gigged twice. And Jumping the Shark never was meant to play live. It was just about making music and recording and we did jumping the shark happened in 2011 the drummer and i decided to go on and we found this great bass player and the three of us hooked up and all three of us were deadheads but we were we didn't want to do grateful dead music we yeah. want to do something of our own with that flavor in mind when i say the flavor being improvisational not um trying to sound like the dead but trying to be an emulation of what they did you know have uh -huh. your head your, or your verses and choruses take a journey in the middle, come back, finish the song. And the song you have is an example of that. And uh, we were an interesting conglomeration of, you know, the hippie music thing, blues, jazz, some funk, some silly stuff, some heart. We did a couple of songs that would curl your hair with edge and angst. Really? And uh, so that's why I chose Bexter, because it was a jazzy number with a bluesy bit in the middle and a heavy-duty improvisational part, and then a hard rock part. So it was a total fusion of yeah, three styles yeah. right there. But that band broke up when I moved to Hawaii. Um, at the end of 2012, we finished. We did our last thing together in January 2013 in a party that was given for me in California and yeah. uh, in San Rafael. And then I moved here. So that was the end of that. So let's jump way back. When did you get into music and what did you first start doing? Did you start performing? Did you start writing? Did you start singing? What, what's what's your, like your history, okay. your personal history? Okay, it goes, let's go all the way back. All the way back to February 9th, 1964. You know what that date is, right? That's uh, the date the Beatles played on Ed Sullivan. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. I was about six years old and I watched my parents what let me watch, which is the dumbest thing they could have done because <laughs> I was never going to be the doctor, lawyer, engineer, uh, judge, um, um, any of that stuff, because I wanted to play rock, man. That's all I wanted to do from that moment forward. And I wanted to play drums because I, I watched Ringo and I went, man, this guy's having the time. But I lived in an apartment building in Brooklyn and uh, there was no chance. My parents were dead set against me being a drummer. But Years flash forward, I learned how to play the drums just because they were there. Yeah. So then I go forward five years. My my parents had bought me a guitar for my eighth or ninth birthday. And I couldn't play it. I couldn't figure out what the hell to do with it. It just was a horrible piece of crap for one. And I had a songbook and the chord charts and all that stuff. And it just never seemed to sound like anything. So I put it in the closet and forgot about it. And then I got into the eighth grade in um, Brooklyn and I started playing the violin You know, the first semester in junior high, what they called it. Yeah. I think it was still junior high back then. It wasn't intermediate school. And I started playing the violin. And then shortly thereafter, I decided, you know, I want to play the guitar again. So yeah. funny sidetrack is I was, a I delivered newspapers and with some of my newspaper route money, I bought a little amplifier in the, music store around the corner and I had a CB microphone and I wired it up so I could plug it into the amp and I was just talking into it and squawking and singing and making noise and my mother came down into the basement and she looked at it and she goes what the hell is that <laughs> and I was like I bought it at the music store what do you mean you bought it at the music store wait till your father gets home and all that crap right 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 so my dad came home and he flipped out when he found out that I spent 35 bucks on this thing. And, you know, he made me take it back to the music store and crying and bawling and blah, blah, blah. And then after all of that, they took me aside and said, look, if you want to play the guitar, we'll get you lessons. So that's where it started, essentially. Started taking lessons from this guy in the same music store. Uh -huh. And that was the summer of 1969. And then, you know, I was 12 years old. And then shortly thereafter, the Woodstock album came out, and I was wow. magnified. I was I'm not magnified, um, electrified. 
Yeah. I had been playing a little bit. I was wanting to play the Beatles and I played Beatles songs and moved on to a second teacher who ended up playing with Joe Jackson years later. Really? Wow. Yeah. I named Vinnie Zumo. He's a real fabulous guitar player in New York. Mm -hmm. And in 1980, he was playing with Joe Jackson. Years earlier, 1970, 69, I was taking lessons from him in a different music store. So when the Woodstock album came out, I was like, I'm, I played the daylights out of that thing every day, working on it, trying to figure out how to play this, that, this, that. Scratched the needle back again, 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 again. Learned how to play every everything I could. And then another thing happened shortly thereafter. This man called the Allman Brothers Band. <laughs> and I got live at Fillmore East, and I was riveted. That album was just like... The, best, the best live album I've ever oh, had in my life. I'm with you. That and Live at Leeds. The even, Who. Even, right. Even Live at Leeds, uh, I'd put Allman Brothers, that top, double album. Sure. Oh, definitely top five. With me, it's and top, it's top one. But, yeah, and, and Live at Leeds was another. I got that for, like, when I graduated from junior high, my parents got me a bunch of albums. Yeah. So when we're talking about 1970, 1971, I had all these great imprinted versions of stuff that I could try to learn. But, of course, my technique wasn't anywhere near as good as any of the pros. So I learned how to emulate it. You know, when I play along and make something that sounded sort of like a Led Zeppelin. Uh -huh. I could never play Jimmy Page's licks, uh, The Who. The Allman Brothers, and I'd been turned on to the Grateful Dead, but it didn't take hold just yet. It didn't happen for five more years until I actually mm -hmm. got reintroduced to it, and I was like, damn, I love this stuff. A series of events went on, but anyway, I started playing guitar, and then I realized I could sing on some level. I don't say I was good, but I could sing. And it's funny now, when I do my shows and we do an acoustic set sometimes, one of the songs I do is the Beatles, You've Got to Hide Your Love Away. Yeah. And I, I tell the story when I do it that one day back in like 1970 or some year around then, 70 or 71, maybe even 72, I don't know exactly when, my good friend and I, we were cutting school and we went up to this park in the woods where we used to go hang out. And we lit a fire and there was a few other people there and I had my guitar with me and I sang that song um you've got to hide your love away and that's the first time i can remember ever having the nerve to sing in front of anybody else no kidding and i realized right then and there i said wow i could actually do this so i became a singer slowly but my guitar playing was always leap years ahead leap years no light years light ahead. years you can edit that out by the way light years ahead of my I guitar probably playing. won't but <laughs> oh come on dude give me a break so uh, it took a long time for my singing to become uh, on a similar level to where I could call myself a singer, but my guitar playing flourished quite a bit right away. Mm -hmm. And then I became a music major. I played in the orchestra in high school. I played the violin and other times I would help out. I would play percussion instruments, things that were needed, sometimes cymbals, sometimes snare drums, sometimes the triangle, whatever was needed. And I was involved in like three music classes. I played a little saxophone, which I suck at, by the way. I still have it. I have a couple of them, but I could barely play. That's funny. But, but the violin was good until about 11th grade. And then I kind of gravitated away because the guitar was just, A, easier to make something happen with. And it was sexy. The violin wasn't. You know, I was yeah. 13, 14 years old. I didn't want to play the violin. I want to play the guitar. I want to rock out. So I kept on. And then I went to college, City College of New York up in Harlem, and I was a music major. And a year later, two year and a half, I guess, later I quit. And I did another college stint in Staten Island where I lived, and then I quit. But meanwhile, by 78, when that was, I started to get to be a decent player and started getting, you know, playing with bands, playing some gigs. I actually played a gig when I was a total rookie in like 1971. I was in ninth grade. Played a couple of gigs. My very first gig was, I'm going to say, October of 1971. And I did a handful of them, and then that band broke up. And then I really didn't do another gig for quite a while because I was getting better in woodshedding, and bands would get together and last for two weeks, a month, two months, and then break up. Everybody get mad at each other. Blah, blah, blah. This guy's mom said, can't play at the house anymore, and we got nowhere to practice, etc. cetera. And someone's father said, you're going to military school. That's the end of you. So 
little by little, by the end of the 70s, though, 78, I had come musically of age and started playing gigs with bands and went up from there. Wow. When did you start writing music? Well, it's funny. I'm not much of a writer, and I'm going to preface that straight out. Um, I probably could count all the songs I've written on my fingers and toes in 54 years of playing music, but I started writing like in that very first um, garage band. We wrote a couple of few songs together. Memorable, no. Rememberable, no. <laughs> uh, I tell you any of the titles or anything, but that was the first attempt at actually writing a song and performing said tunes. Because, I mean, we had a band that knew like Jumpin' Jack Flash and a couple of songs from Woodstock. And that was it. You know, we had like five songs. So we wrote like two or three cheesy little songs that we did. Yeah, you know, I really never wrote much. And every problem with me as a writer was I would start writing or I'd hear a lick. I'd play a lick. It would be by accident to sit down and go, hey, I like that. Mm -hmm. And I would start messing around with it. And then five minutes later, I'd be like, oh, geez, it's a Beatles song. Or it's a Stone <laughs> song. Or it's a Clapton song. So that would be the end of that. Yep. Or another problem would be I would start messing around with a song. And by the time I had solidified what it was that I was playing, I forgot where I started. So oh, I was what? like, what the hell was I doing? <laughs> and then I would, so then I started figuring, okay, I got a tape recorder. I'll record it. Fine. Great. Great idea. Then I would go back and listen to it and go, oh, that sucks. Wait a minute. That's good. No, but that sucks. And I would like one of those can't see the forest for the trees kind of right, thing. Right, right. Yeah. So I would get completely, completely stymied by it. And I just throw it nah, to hell with it. But my songwriting, I would say as a as a player, my songwriting is my jams. When I'm jamming, yeah. that's my song. I create moments, melodies, motifs, and yeah. high high tra traveling, high energy, going down low, getting loud, getting soft. And those peaks, valleys, and and uh, moments are my songs, really. But then, you know, people go, they, they want to hear songs. They don't want to hear you just jamming the shit out of your guitar. They want to hear melody, words, concepts, right. harmonies. So, yeah, over the years, I've, I've dabbled. I've written some songs. But like I said, memorable? No. But when Jumping the Shark came around, I had a handful of small kind of ideas sitting on a shelf that some of which I had been the previous band I was in actually was called the accidentals. And the drummer and I were in that band when that broke up, the songs that we had been playing, the handful of originals that we had been doing, we took the ones that were pretty much my ideas and we retooled them for the new band. Uh -huh. So that's kind of where it all started with the original songs, things that you have here. Um, Dexter came out of a jam, and it was originally called 6664. Why 6664? It was written in 666 and 4, which is 11. If you did the math, it's 22. So the whole um, motif is written over two measures of 11. So 11 is 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3, 1, 2. That's how you count it. So if you listen to it, you'll hear it goes over and over again with this odd meter. Uh -huh. So we, we started jamming a lot. And what we did was we recorded all our jams. And we did what I always try to do years later, but I had somebody else listen to it. My drummer, Paul, yeah. Paul Scannell, good guy, good drummer, good friend. And Paul Scannell would listen to this stuff and go, dude, listen to this from minute 1.03 through minute 2.07. It's gold. <laughs> you know, that Seinfeld joke. It's gold, Jerry. It's gold. It's gold, Jerry. <laughs> gold, Jerry. So he go, no, dude, you got to remember what you play there because this is this is a song. So I would do that and I would relearn the lick and then we would try to perfect it. And then we got it. We had no bass player as of yet. So we would just mess around. Then um, Blues Around Midnight I actually wrote. I, you know, I, I'll be honest, B.B. King wrote it before I did. And uh, he did it probably better than I did. But I, I used a common blues pattern. And that became blues around midnight. And guess what? I had the blues around midnight. Simple. Yeah. So I sang about my, my feelings at the moment. I was bummed out about something. And 
wrote the song. So our songwriting from the shark days were a handful of ideas that we either had or like the bass player, Ted, his name was Ted Burek. I should say is Ted Burek, Bay Area monster bass player. Mm -hmm. And he had two songs that he had written years earlier that were shelved. And I had a few other ideas and some songs from the accidentals that were reusable if we re-edited them and removed parts that other guys put in and just the, the pure ideas that were mine. And then the songs that Paul had commented on the lyrics and one by one, we compiled a list of about 12 tunes and we methodically went about recording them shortly before I was getting ready to move to Hawaii. So that was the thing. We were trying to finish this stuff while I'm packing up and wow. everything was shrinking around me. Uh-huh. And because you have to put everything in a container to move to Hawaii so it right. can go on a boat. Right. And we were up against a sort of a deadline, but I was like, no, I can't, I can't pack my music stuff just yet because I gotta finish this. And it was, you know, days of packing and it'd be less and less and less around, but the the mixer, the monitors, and the effects and outboard gear were all still intact until I finished everything, did some mixes, and then moved. Then once I got back to Hawaii. When I got to Hawaii, we I reset up everything in the spare room, whereupon I sat down to remix everything to everyone's satisfaction. Hence, the album that we never released. We had recorded 11 songs. We were going to make a CD. Eh, why bother? So we had the tracks. And when you were looking for uh, original songs, I said, well, I got two that are original, one very original. And then that's where that came from. Also, going down to New Orleans, I wrote all by myself. And that was after, guess what? I went to New Orleans. Yeah, I was going to say. Well, and, when, uh, you, when you sent me that, I, I mentioned to you, I think my, my email back to you, like I've always got a soft spot in my heart for anybody that says anything about New Orleans because that's yeah. that's my team. That's my football team. And that's, oh, cool. that whole town is my jam. And I've only been there half a dozen times. About the same for me, about half a dozen times. Yeah. I'll tell you what. Every time I go to New Orleans, now I haven't gone since the late 2000s after Katrina. I went one more time. Um, you could be walking down Bourbon Street or, or any of the places where there's live music in the quarter or other places in town. And even the worst crappy band is better than most any band you'll ever hear. Better anymore. than any band you ever hear. Yep. I was walking down Bourbon Street and there was a band playing My Life by Billy Joel. Not uh -huh. exactly. A f and I'm thinking... They're playing My Life by Billy Joel, but they were killing it. They were like, yeah. these guys are, are just burning this, this pop song. And then you walk down another block and there's there's dudes blowing hard bebop. And then you go another block down and there's a funk band. And then around the corner is a blues band. And every one of them is top notch. And then I went to Preservation Hall and there's, you know, the, the Preservation Hall jazz band. Old dudes, young dudes, black dudes, white dudes, Asian dudes, all yeah. cooking on Dixieland. And I'm like, so every time I go there, I would come home going, I'm full with ideas and recharged. And, yeah. you know, meanwhile, also feeling like I'm nothing because they're so superior players. I go home going, God, have I just been humbled? But nonetheless, I absorb something every time. I feel like, like Dennis Hopper in Apocalypse Now when he's describing... Kurtz, you know, he's he's yeah. he's great, man. And I'm like so small, man. And he's like, that's, <laughs> that's what you feel like as a musician. You Charlie don't like surf. That. <laughs> that's funny. Charlie, Charlie don't, don't surf. surf. Well, <laughs> speaking of going down to New Orleans, we're gonna play that now. Okay? okay, so people can hear this. This was recorded, you said in 2019. Uh yeah, this was recorded in my previous home studio to where I, I to where from where I recently moved to this place I'm at now. Yeah. And I had a really great setup and I was playing with that version of Bottle of Blue. And we were in the midst of writing songs and it was just before COVID hit, maybe what, six months or so, maybe a little more. And we were using the originals we had with the concept of making a record. Yeah. And which we wrote a whole bunch more during COVID. We did it remotely over the internet using a program called Jam Kazam. So, you know, I, got, I taught them my, those, I only brought that one song to Bottle of Blue at that from my external sources and they worked out a version of it and I teach the lead singer how to sing backup with me and we worked it out and then I after I got it basically recorded I invited some horn playing friends 
to come and lay some horn tracks. Cool. Yeah. So we didn't have a horn section in the band, but I edited it in such a way that the part where the horns go was a repetitive motif that I was eight bar phrase, I believe that I was able to loop as many times as needed. So I'll give away the secret kids. I copied and pasted that part over and over and over again to accommodate all the soloists that I was going to have. Yeah. And and then I had them come in, learn the, learn the material. Uh, my first was my sax playing friend, Mike Evans. He played saxes. And then another dude named Mike Aloha, he played trumpet. And so between those two, I put together a horn section and solos. And I used those horn uh, parts in and out of the tune, stabs and melodies and counter melodies. And it was actually the first time I ever even worked on an arrangement of horn players. I played with them, but I never tried to arrange anything before it was kind of a challenge yeah and then the keyboard player did his solo i did my so i think i played a little piano on it as well i can't remember for sure redid some of my solos we redid the vocals and then it sat in the can because we wanted to do some more work to it then covid hit and then so we were got a lot of downtime so i re, re um remixed it a few times and we also decided that we wanted to do some more work on it, but never happened. So that's the release as it was. That was all I was going to do with it. Uh-huh. And there's other versions of that song I had done with other bands because I had written it in, I think, 2008 or seven or six after I went down to New Orleans, came home uh-huh. with a song and said, want to hear? goes like this. So that's the backstory to that. Well, then I'm going to use that and say, here's going down to New Orleans. It sounds like this. All right.
You go to your commercial? Yeah, I, and I forgot which one I already did, so I'm just gonna grab it. Is this one gonna be for like Burma Shave or or no, uh, no, Peels Real Draft Ale or? Do you no, but remember? I gotta get my as soon as we as I this rarely happens, but as soon as we started this podcast thing, this uh, this interview, about five minutes into it, I got a text from my girlfriend. She got off work early and she's changing clothes. I'm like. Well, I'm in the middle of an interview, dude. You're supposed to work till six, so you work till six. Don't expect me to, you know, just sit around and wait. You know, it's twenty till six right now. Yeah, she got off a half hour ago, and she's going to be walking. She's going to walk home. I'm like, well, okay, I I can't do shit about it. You know, hope you guys don't get into a shit over it. I'm not going to. You know, well, I know what it's like, dude. I'm married to, and we're going through crazy shit with ourselves right now. So, I know all too well. All right, well, let's do this, and then uh, we're going to get into Baxter in three, two, going down to New Orleans with Steve Fundy and Bottle of Blue or Uncle Charlie or Gone Country, but that was actually Bottle of Blue, and we'll talk with uh, Steve a little bit more. Discover your celebrity at the newest, hottest, most interesting, and fun live music show ever to hit the scene in the last 50 years called Flash Jam. Flash Jam. Whether you perform live music or enjoy watching live music, Flash Jam has something for everyone. Flash Jam is a dynamic way for musicians to come together, perform, and compete for recognition and rewards. Whether you're new to the stage or an experienced musician, Flash Jam provides an exciting platform to collaborate and showcase your talents. Musicians will perform songs with other random musicians who share the same passion for that same song. And existing bands are featured performing iconic songs to help display new and emerging local talents. All live music patrons participate by voting for their favorite musical combinations, and it's all there at Flash Jam. It's a really fun, interesting concept, and it's coming to a market near you. Flash Jam, flashjam.com. Welcome to the show. It's kind of like karaoke with bands. It's a Actually, new- I was referencing Jam Kazam during the previous segment. It's yeah, the same yeah. kind of thing. Oh, and- is it? Jam Kazam was the same kind of thing, except it doesn't have the uh, focus on getting it out to people so much. It's really so you can get together and collaborate or jam without having to be in the same room. Oh, and wow. I started to do it because my drive from my previous place to Kono is 93 miles each way. Yeah. And the band wanted to practice once a week. Plus, we had gigs every weekend, two times, two sometimes. And sometimes in the middle of the week, and I would drive into Kona and back four, five, six times, seven, eight, nine times a month. And I'm like, man, this is crazy. So I said, listen, can we just rehearse this way? Then the pandemic hit. Yeah. Where nobody could do anything. So it was a great way for us to practice, woodshed, write, and still connect. And it was clunky sometimes. The, the you know connection would go fuzzy on you. Dropouts, people drop in, drop out. You can't. Yeah, what yeah. You, I, I lost you. Wait, are you there? But. All in all, it was good. And, you know, it's funny. You just mentioned an anonymous jam. Uh, I did an anonymous jam, a couple of them. With One was a bunch of cats in the Northeast, in Vermont, for one. And they really? were like in Vermont, Massachusetts, Montreal. And I was like, shit, this is cool. I'm jamming. I'm in Hawaii. So I'm like, what the hell time is it over there? It's like 10 o'clock at night. And they're like, yeah. I said, like, where are you? I said, I'm in the big island of Hawaii. They're like, what? What's this? It's <laughs> beautiful dude and they were like we're freezing our asses off <laughs> and a couple of them i did another notable one with a bunch of dudes in colorado it was kind of great but the, it was it served its purpose so onward onward so earlier you talked quite a bit about bexter the song yeah. bexter and this is a song you wrote with when you were with jumping the shark yes but you didn't write that by yourself there were two other people no involved it was, in it. yeah all three of us ted Ted Burek, the bass player, uh-huh. Paul Scannell, the drummer, and myself. What we were doing, as I said earlier, is we were jamming like every weekend for months. And I had a full tilt little studio in my place in California, albeit a small space. But I had, you know, a full 24-track studio and everything. So we recorded everything we did. Every shitty jam, every great jam, every, every, every. Yeah. And then what I would do is at the end of a session, a day or so later, I would mix it down. And I would send it to both of them for critique about, hey, what did we do? And do you like anything here? Or, you know, 
we did a version of some cover of somebody else's and oh, I got a great version of whatever, but that jam that we did this one, whatever you want to call it, the, the second one, um, I hear some good stuff in there. Let me know what you guys think. So we've been doing that for a few weeks, months, actually, after Ted joined up with us. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had this little thing that we, like I said, we called 6664 because the phrase was ultimately two measures of 11. But it was a, it felt like a field where you had six, then six, then six, then four, yeah. which when you break down is two, two sets of 11. 11 is an odd meter. And 11 counts out normally one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three. And it goes over and over again. You really don't feel that it's odd, but it is. So we had this little bit we jammed. And, and one of them said to me, I really like this thing we were doing. And I, as I recall, I started playing the initial lick, whatever became the intro lick to the song. Or no, actually, I believe thinking more deeply, I think the drummer, Paul, started playing a groove. And that was ultimately the the beat for the song, but he had no reference to what it would be. And then I started playing this lick. That's what became the song. The bass player heard it, jumped in, and then we just jammed on that. We didn't do anything more. We just had that that motif that's the intro to the song. And then we jammed on it and we moved on and we did some other. But then they listened to it and said, dude, this is something right here. So I took it back into my studio and opened up the file and and listened to it a bit and said yeah from the beginning where you started with the drum beat until here is definitely a motif that i would call a song but it was just a bit it wasn't the whole thing so then we started messing around with a little more and some jams and that's when i came up with the lick that why we called it bexter because it was kind of a knockoff jeff beck sort of lick yeah not that i could compare to him but he's one of my god heroes of guitar and unfortunately, he uh, he died, as everyone right. knows. I'd seen him live a number of times throughout the years and was always blown away. So I kind of came up with this quasi-Jeff Beck-ish instrumental thing. I think it's kind of sort of reminds me of, um, what's that tune that he did um, with Keith Moon? And, oh, um, it'll come to me. Well, what it reminded me of, and this is maybe going to tax you a little bit, but do you remember Humble Pie? Oh, sure. Well, my it, first concert. It was mine, too. One of mine. I wow. saw hum, hum, Humble Pie, Montrose, Spooky Tooth, and and one other band, oh, Frampton's Camel, mm-hmm. all in one, one billing. But they wow. did a song. It was an instrumental with three guitars, and it was in that same syncopation, that one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, Humble Pie? It was humble pie, and I can't think of the you name. Know what song? That's what I'm saying. I can't. And I'm, I'm, I'm while we're talking, I'm trying to Google it. <laughs> oh, okay. The song I was thinking of is Bex Bolero. Oh, Bex Bolero. Yeah, yeah. It, okay. If you listen to this, if you listen to Bexter again, you might now. Now that I've mentioned it, oh yeah, I could see the connection to Bex Bolero to a small degree, but that was kind of the vibe. I really want to know what that humble pie song is because yeah, man, I know. I'm, it. I'm, I, I'm trying to think what it is now. I'm, I'm trying to find it, and it was. You know, it's gonna be one of those. I'm gonna hang up. We're gonna get done. Yeah, and then, and then it, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll I'll find it and I'll email it to you because no worries. I, I just remember I, I recently, like recently in the last with me recently in the last twenty years. <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. Recently in the last ten or ten years or so, I saw a video of them doing it, like like they maybe did it on Don Kirshner's rock concert or something back in the day. You know, yeah, and somebody had preserved that. And then put it on like YouTube or something, but uh, and all I can come to mind, all that comes to mind right now is the Cream song that S W Swilber, S W Swablar, Swablar. She yeah. wore, she was like a, wait, she was like a bearded rainbow. Oh, is that what it? I never knew what that was. S W A B L R. She was like a bearded rainbow, and if you listen to the words. But the rainbow's got a beard. Uh, and, and her and, sister has a mustache. A mustache. <laughs> That's what it was about. Well, I'll be damned. I didn't know. Yeah, that. hello. I used to play that actually ages ago. And then the cover band that I had before, while I was packing, getting ready to leave for Hawaii, was called the Microdots. Not necessarily a drug influence. Everyone goes, you know, Microdots are tab acid. And I said, duh. They were like, why'd you call it that? I said, because we're four guys, so small dots, nobody would even know we exist. 
but we played swap <laughs> bar in that band too. Funny. Well, yeah, I, I, I like people. I said, get your mind out of the gutter. Get your mind out the gutter. That. Yeah, it was well, just a, a nice play of words. Since we're talking so, about uh, Baxter, we're talking about instrumentals. We're going to play Baxter now. Come back and talk about Blues Round Midnight. But right now, we're with Steve Fundy from. I'm going to try it again. Palo Alawa. No. Palo Aloa. Papa Aloa. Papa Aloa. I want to say a little bit about Baxter quickly. Okay, yeah. Just yeah. just briefly. While we were writing the song, we decided that we were going to use the middle as a big open jam section, jazzy, fast jazzy, kind of on the bebop side of things. But we also decided that we wanted to put a bluesy piece into it. Uh -huh. We also decided that we wanted it to be rock and hard. So it was kind of a fusion of those three ideals. So the um, intro and the X and the out and the other, what you call the verses were the rock and hard rock and part. But then we break into a blues, a slow shuffly blues, which I started singing the King Bee. But instead of singing the real lyrics, I sang, I'm not the King Bee. I'm not going to be buzzing around your hive. Oh, okay. And so that we had a bluesy section, which broke back to the rock section. Then we opened up this big old jazzy jam. And then that bled back into the rock part again. So that was the basis. It was it was fusion of those three things and those three elements. And that's that that's the tune. Cool. Let's play it. All right. Do it. All right, this is Bexter with Steve Fundy in Bottle of Blue. No, this was Bexter by Jumpin' the Start. Jumpin' the Shark, Shark. with Steve ah. Fundy and the Music of America podcast. Here we go.
Dexter by Jumping the Shark with Steve Fundy, one of his many bands he's been in. B Normous Productions has been producing and recording music and videos for over 20 years. And after years as a performer, the owner, Van Verhoeven, decided to get back to that which he loved the most, and that's production. Under the tutelage of Jordan Valeria, he opened up his own place in Millican, Colorado. High-end instruments and tools are on hand to make your sound compete with your own favorite records. And he has one goal in mind, for you to look and sound as professional as possible. So go make a video or two. Go make some records. Be Normous Productions. They're on Facebook, or you can find them at bnormousproductions.com. Steve, have you delved into video? Have I what? Delved into video. Have you done video? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely delved, yeah. Um, back about, I'd say, 19, no, probably a little, it was the beginning of the 20s, so 2000, early in the 2000 era, I got a video camera and we used to record stuff. And then when that band, The Accidentals, and its cohort band called Live Dead Band, we were doing Grateful Dead music, I was videotaping everything we did, or video recording. And then I would edit it down, make discs for everybody. Um, so yeah, and then now I have a friend here in Hawaii whose name is Ray Sharon. He records almost every, well, that's not correct. He records a lot of my gigs, as well as a lot of other bands here in Hawaii. And he does multi-camera angles with um, multi-track audio. And he does a real good job. And it, it's great for us because people get to hear us and see us. And then like, wow, I got to see those guys. And we put it on YouTube usually. So it's up there. And if you ever, anyone is interested in hearing the music of Ray and myself and many others, it's on YouTube. And his channel is Kao Ray. K-E-E, I'm sorry, K-E-A-A-U-R-A-Y. One wow. word. <laughs> K-A-U is where I used to live. Oh, and Ray, Ray does a real good job. Cool. I got tired of dealing with the videos. It was one more thing. I, I have a sound system. I'm the lead singer. I'm the guitar player. I'm kind of the leader, quasi-leader. Yeah. I had enough hats to wear. I don't need to do video anymore. Let someone else do it. Well, let's talk about this last song here, Blues Run Midnight. Right. You wrote this by yourself. And this was yes. when you were with Jumping the Shark again. Yes. I think I might have written it before the shark period. I think I might have written it when the Accidentals were still together and we were on the beginning to fold. Mm -hmm. It might have even been an Accidentals tune that we were doing. I can't remember at this point. The Accidentals went from 2000 until 2011 or 2010. Yeah. So we jammed most of the we. We weren't really prepared to play live. We just were just jamming for weeks and months and years. Then eventually we started getting gigs toward the end of the 10-year period. And then the band eventually broke up, like they all do. But I think I'd written Blues Round Midnight in that period, probably 2007, 6, 7, 8, right around when I wrote Going Down New Orleans. And as the title says, I had the blues round midnight. It's like, you know, Miles got round midnight. Yep, round yep. midnight. Right. So I caught this title, Blues Round Midnight. And uh, it was straight up 145, kind of BB King-ish. And yeah. I will never say that I can create blues music that hasn't already been created because it's almost impossible. The blues has been done since basically 100 plus years ago now right. in various formats, but it's ultimately the same vibe. It's the blues. Yeah. You can improve upon it, maybe, or you can put your own stamp on it, but you can't create it. It's already been created. So I figured, well, what the hell? I had a, I had a vibe. I wasn't feeling, I was down, you know, bumming about something. I can't even remember what. Probably bumming about getting up to go to work the next day. <laughs> so I started singing. I got the blues around midnight, sometimes at the break of day. Hmm. Yeah, how about that? I got to get up in the morning and go to my job, which I hate, yep. which most of us did do. And I got the blues around midnight. Oh, what did I ask? And then another was I got the blues around Christmas, sometimes on New Year's Eve. When I get the blues on New Year's, it's going to be a long, long year. Yeah. <laughs> and then another line was I get the blues in Chicago. I get the blues in New Orleans. I get the blues in wherever I am. And right. then I had, you know, get the blues here in Papaloa, Hawaii, or New York City, or anywhere in between. Sometimes the town wouldn't fit. You know, the, the name of the town being a bit too long. Right. So I get the blues in Papaloa, Hawaii. You really had to spit that one out. <laughs> but, you know, it's basically a classic 145 BB King-ish blues. Yeah. And Jumpin' the Shark played it. And I had my really good friend named Dave Broida, who I've known since I first went to California, moved there in 86. 
and he's a great harmonica player and a great friend. And I figured I got a blues tune. Come on, get my harmonica friend on it. So that's really it. Played slide guitar. He played harmonica. We traded licks back and forth. And uh, there it is. And I'm still performing that song as well as New Orleans to this day. And it's one of the cool things about one, four, five songs too, is you can sit down with anybody, Yo, you know, totally. say, let's, let's do it. I don't know the song. I don't care. It's an A. What key? It's, it's right. What key? right. Right. It's an A. Let's go. <laughs> Watch me for the stops. <laughs> Watch me for the stops. That's right. Watch me for the stops. Watch exactly. The stops. What's really funny <laughs> about, about uh, blues round midnight is if you listen to the tag at the very end, most, when I'm first showing this to people, even in live, they don't get the fact that I don't do the four and the five at the end. I sing Blues Round Midnight three times and with call and response. Blues Round Midnight, then the backup singers right. sing Blues Round Midnight. And I do it three times, but I never go to the four chord. I hit a stop, a lick, and out. But So no I can't tell you how many times people go to the four chord and I'm like, no, 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 one, yeah. stay on one. And then the other funny thing is it's not blues around midnight, which is what people sing. Uh-huh. When they back me up, they're like blues around midnight. And then I take them to the side and go, it's round midnight, not around. Think miles, dude. Think miles. <laughs> All right, let's get back. Let's finish this up. This is Blues Brown Midnight by Jumping the Shark with Steve Fundy. Good day. Yeah, I get the blues round midnight. 
blues around midnight. And our guest today has been Steve Fundy. This is what we call the section of the show is called shameless self-promotion, where you can, you know, just pimp the hell out of your, your product and your, your merch and how people can find you and hear you and buy your stuff and spend money on you instead of, you know, $5 coffees at Starbucks or something. So where do we find you? Me? I'm on the island of Hawaii. That's where you find me. How do Although, we find your you, merch? You want to find my merch? You can't because it does not exist. No. I'm just a player. I play every weekend here in Hawaii in my three different bands I play in. That would be Uncle Charlie, a jam band, Grateful Dead-ish kind of thing, and then Gone Country, a country band, and then Grass-Fed Longhorns, another country band, which kind of plays Stones and Country and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. We play all the twangy stone songs. And um, you could find me on Facebook, of course, Steve Fundy, F-U-N-D-Y. And if you want to see any of my other work that I've done playing, it's on YouTube at my friend Ray's page or channel, I should say, K-E-A-A-U-R-A-Y, K-A-U-R-A-Y. And I've probably got 40 different videos of him that he shot of me on that thing for over 10 years now. How fun. So no merch, just music. And uh, can they buy their music, buy your music on Spotify or Bandcamp or? Uh, actually, or Bottle of Blue has some stuff on Spotify. Okay. Then I'm on those recordings as well. We did some recording about three years ago. So yeah, there's a couple of tunes. I think one of them is called Seatbelt. The other one is Bye Bye Baby. And I and or. Um, what the hell's the other one? Um, well, anyway, if you look up Bottle of Blue on Spotify, yeah. there's two or three songs that I'm involved with that were recorded a few years ago here in Hawaii, and they're on Spotify. Cool. Steve, it's been a blast. This time goes too quickly when you get somebody like you in here. You know, you're you're yeah. colorful and you're experienced and you're knowledgeable and you're talented and you're just a blast, man. Loved it. Well, thank Loved you. It. Thank you, Tom. We'll, we'll get together it's been again. a lot of fun. Yeah. It's been a lot of fun. And again, you know, when, when this was offered to me, I'm like, well, what do I got to lose? You know, I'll spend a little time, send you a couple of songs. And I figured it would never ever happen anyway, because people all talk about what they're going to do and then they don't follow through. And you're one who actually did. Hey man, we're, so in, can, we're in month number three. See, by the time this thing hit, <laughs> getting the shaka bra from Hawaii style. Got it. All right, man, thanks. It's Steve Fundy, right. been our guest today. And up next, Eric Wilcox and a band called Cause of Affliction. You've been listening to the Music of America podcast. If you like today's show, please go to the website at www.musicofamericapod.com or our Music of America podcast Facebook page. Like us and follow the show and episodes. We tally the votes of all our shows and the most listened to shows will be rebroadcast on our best of shows at the end of the season. I look forward to having you with us again and listening to the Music of America.